0: Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Kia ora and hello.
1: I've been asked to tell you about No Labels, the radio show for, by, and about people living with disabilities. The show offers interviews and news about the disability sector in Aotearoa, New Zealand. On Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM, Find us on Facebook or go to www.accessradio.org.nz. No Labels, our voice for you on Access Radio. Hello and welcome to No Labels. I'm Mike Gawley. 30 or 40 years ago, equal employment opportunities were riding high in the public service. So where are things at now? And what vocational training is available for disabled people? That's what we explore in today's show. First up, we hear from former DPA National Policy Analyst and Researcher, Wendy Wicks, and former Human Rights Commissioner, Robin Hunt.
2: Oh, well, it means just that. It means that the opportunities are equal. It might not mean that the outcome is equal, but what it means is that measures will be put in place to make sure that people have, all have the same opportunities, which might mean things that are different for different groups of people. And for me... Probably I, I just add a little bit to that, in that um, if you get if you get a, um, a fair go at the start, chances are you get you're going to get a, a better outcome. So you've got a um, to me EEO has always meant a fairer suck of affairs.
1: And what are the things that get in the way of EEO at the moment, do you think?
2: Go. Um, um, I think the things that get in the way of EEO at the moment are things like fear, uh, fear of cost, a lack of understanding of what's needed to make a workplace disability friendly, uh, lack of access of all kinds, difficulties with technology and getting everything to line up so that you can, if, if you have to use assistive tech, that you can go into an organisation and immediately interface with all their systems. So there's a whole lot of issues around, I think there's probably still stuff around cost, although um, I'm not in touch enough with what's going on at the grassroots to know how how much of that is uh, is an issue. But I do think that, that fear of disability and a lack of understanding is probably still fairly similar to what it's always been.
1: When you say cost, what kind of things are you thinking about there?
2: Well, cost of things like technology, and a lot of it's imagined cost, you know. It's cost of technology. Uh, people might think that it will cost them a lot because somebody will need lots of time off. And ironically, one of the things that, that's come out with COVID is the issue about working from home and that disabled people were never trusted to work from home, but now everybody's working from home. So it will be interesting to see how that particular issue plays out.
1: Well, of course, all three of us can remember fondly those days in public service when there was, seemed to be a real push in terms of EEO units. Every, every department seemed to have one how how is that still the case or do you think there's been some deterioration in the public service?
2: Oh I think it's it's um, it's a roaring silence in there if um, they possibly might have um, tossed it into diversity and chucked it back to HR um <clears throat> But to my way of thinking, uh, there there are, there are very few places that would have EEO as such. What do I you don't reckon, Robyn? Uh, I, I agree. I don't think it's called EEO anymore. I think that people think that's old hat and old-fashioned and quaint. Um, they are all going on about diversity at the moment, which is a very different kettle of fish, in my view, um, I think it's all in HR, but I do think there are one or two initiatives. I think MSD's got a few things going. Um, just because I've heard a couple of people who you, would hope you'd hope
1: there. so, given their focus, wouldn't you?
2: Well, you, would. you certainly would, and it's certainly interesting in the light of the new Disability Ministry, the discussion that's gone on. Um, but I think EO came along. At a really difficult time, and that's one of the reasons it didn't succeed, because although it was quite strongly worded in the then State Sector Act, the new State Sector Act is nothing like as strong, but it was also at a time of, of huge government reform. And so I think it's kind of, in terms of disability, a lot of people got turfed out because they had no protection under the Human Rights Act. And so the Human Rights Act came a bit lately to the party in terms of EEO because once after the 1990 election, you could tell that EEO in the public sector was um, was not going to was not going to um, succeed as well as it had previously, and so um, I think that that the 90s put a big Damper on on progress in that area um, because it was the whole let the managers manage thing and um, process and um, a lack of a, a sort of divesting of centralised control, which I think is kind of mm, going back a little bit now. I think it's the, the 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 new look public service is probably a bit more accountable than it was back in the mad, madness of the late 80s, where people were restructuring left, right and centre and throwing people out. And disabled people had no, no protection whatsoever. I have often wondered myself how it came to be that, um, that very, as you say, very uh, firmly worded uh, about that. Um, set up EEO in the State Sector Act um, because the State Sector Act itself was um, was fairly rabid right-wing neoliberal ideology um, about, you know, about to be given a government mandate to, uh, to free will. Um, but there was this in it. And I was... I've often wondered, who was it I, who, put the, uh, who managed to get the put in there? Because I think given, given what the act was, it was a triumph of, um, uh, you know, sort of rearguard action over great adversity. I think I know who was involved, and I don't know that I want to say so in public, but I definitely know there was some wheeling and dealing went on over it at the time. And that includes the public service. stuff. that God, I must find out at some point. Um, yeah.
1: I suppose there's a feeling that if the public service could get it right, it might um, flow out into the private sector. I mean, how much was that idea realised at all? Or is, is it now, perhaps?
2: I don't think it was realised then. And I really can't... Comment on what it's like now, because i haven't worked in the private sector forever, and um, the public service i think is a bit better i I tend to encounter more disabled people in you know in reasonable sort of roles so but i but I can't comment on the on the on the private sector however, what i can what you can look at and I think it's very indicative is the unemployment rate generally is very low at the moment. It's something like two-point-something. Um, that was for the, for the February quarter, I think. So, well, it was a February anyway. And the disability unemployment rate, um, which was, say, June last year, is 9%, 9-point-something percent. So the unemployment rate is roughly three, three times that, that of mm-hmm. the un, of, of the non-disabled unemployment rate, which is, you know, pretty amazing, really.
1: Because I was wondering if, given that the unemployment rate is so low, like, the you said, 3.2%, that employers might be starting to wonder about who else they can actually recruit.
2: This, well, you'd hope so, but the cynic in me is not sure. I mean, I think you'd have to talk to somebody like... Um, um, Workbridge would probably have a better idea of, of whether that's the case. But I'm not sure that it really is, because a lot of the areas where they want people are the things like hospos, uh, fruit picking, stuff like that, which a lot of people wouldn't hire disabled people in.
1: That's former Human Rights Commissioner Robert Hunt, and with her you heard Wendy Wicks, former DPA National Policy Analyst and Researcher. John Grant is Director of Vocational Training Agency, ARA. What are the main issues that you see at the moment in terms of tertiary education, tertiary training?
3: Well, look, Mike, um, you know, I think, I think there are a number of, of barriers and challenges that uh, many disabled people face in terms of, of access and participation and, indeed, success uh, within the vocational education um, system, and, and that has been... Uh, I think more formally recognized um, uh, through a report that was released at the end of last year, the Torito report that provided insights uh, from disabled learners and staff across the, dis- the sorry the vocational um, sector uh, to look at opportunities to increase that access participation and success so those barriers if, uh, you know if I could summarize uh, would be uh, are fundamentally about um, Uh, attitudinal, Um, so in terms of, of, you know, levels of of confidence that that exist um, with our, particularly with our teaching staff, uh, structural, so, you know, that relates to the way in which courses are are designed, delivered, uh, and assessed, and also I think there's some resourcing-related issues there as well that that need to be looked at. So, yeah, those barriers really are are attitudinal, structural, and and resource-related
1: now, that report, T-Rental, what kind of responses were you involved in yourself and how do they work out? Um, well, I, I've been more involved in uh, looking at ways in which
3: we can reduce some of those barriers and challenges. So, you know, I've been involved in uh, the design of, of you know, uh, strategies and plans uh, to address address those issues, really. And so that report has identified eight opportunity areas, which we've certainly um, embraced and, and uh, begun to integrate in, in our planning processes here, here at ARA. So, you know, I think I think the the, the barriers and the challenges, Mike, are, are pretty well understood now. And so, really, the the, um, the the focus from here is, you know, how we can respond to those those opportunity areas to to address, you know, the the, um, the challenges that that we are pretty well informed of
1: um, at this time. Can you tell me a little bit about what ARA is and what does it, and what how is it involved? So um, ARA is is uh, the uh,
3: polytechnic based um, down here in Christchurch, and you know is one of the subsidiaries that are a part of the Te Pukinga network. So there's 16 subsidiaries or 16 um, you know polytechnics across the the country that that are uh, a part of the Te um network, and so we're one of the larger um, organisations in in the network. And, you know, we provide a, a range of learning opportunities for people across a number of, of different areas. So, you know, that's from our, um, you know, our, our trades department through to our hospitality um, department, our health practice, um, social practice. So, you know, we, we offer a broad range of, of programs um, and including a, a bespoke program for our learners with intellectual disability as well.
1: Is that something that grew out of the existing work schools and live schools programs, I can recall? Yes, that's right.
3: So, so you know, um, I think one of the things that, that we're wanting to look at is how we can uh, build on that, really, and, and how we can move that from just being a kind of a discrete program to um, looking at more bespoke um, offerings, you know, within our various academic departments so that, you know, we're, we're taking a, a more, um, I suppose, focused and and... Um, you know, um, nuanced, if you like, uh, approach to, to offering qualifications beyond just the the work skills.
1: What kind of government agencies are you having to link into and with? Well,
3: look, you know, clearly we have you know close working relationships with the Ministry of Education and, and TEC. Um, you know, as, as funders and, and regulators of, of what we do. Well, what I'm interested in, Mike, um, particularly uh, regarding our disabled learners, is how we can interface more with some of the, the, the schools, our special schools, for example, but also, you know, a range of of disability providers, um, you know, NGOs that that are very much in um, you know in, in, in the business of of providing those much-needed support services to enable people to to um, you know access education um, and but fundamentally also to then transition in, into work so we're, we're looking at uh, an initiative which is essentially um, you know a disability hub where we can have those key organizations um, having more of a presence here on campus so that it makes it uh, Easier and and, and uh, more seamless for our disabled learners to to link into those, I guess, um, services that that can make a real difference, particularly with that, at those transition points. So, you know, looking for example um, at the enabling good lives team uh, having a bit more of a presence uh, in terms of transitioning into to our organisation and and you know developing some tailored support. Um, packages to enable that, um, as well as you know, looking at what what we can do in terms of partnering with a range of organisations that are focused around providing those supports for people to then to transition into work. So you know, organisations like Workbridge, for example, um, you know that, that I think uh, you, you know we can be working more closely with.
1: And what kind of um, sympathy or support have Well, not sympathy, so that's a bad word. What kind of supports are you getting from agencies like Workbridge? How oh, look,
3: they? I... Yeah, look, I think there's, there's a real appetite um, to work more closely with us. And, and you know, I think, um, you know, we, we have a shared goal, really, in terms of particularly with, um, you know, uh, uh, supporting our disabled learners to... To, to, you know, find employment once they have completed their time with us and, and completed their, their courses or programs of study. And, and indeed, you know, one of the key findings from the Torito report through Tipu Kinga um, was that there currently is a lack of employment pathways for disabled learners and that, you know, there are multiple barriers to, to employment. Um, and I think, you know, part of that, Mike, is a lack of understanding and confidence, disability confidence with, with employers. So you know one one solution or one part of the solution I think is to strengthen those partnerships and to work more closely with the likes of workbridge um, to to enable um you know those pathways to to really um, to to be strengthened and you know looking at things like um, internship programs for example uh and you know and move away from that notion of people being work ready uh, i think by you know i think by virtue of of being involved in a program of study and and um you know identifying that workers is, is an outcome that people are wanting you know let 's sort of park that notion of work readiness and and you know work with the person um to to ensure that those pathways are, are um you know evolving in ways that that lead to improving outcomes for people.
1: That's ARA director, John Grant. Alice Mander is the co-president of the National Disabled Students Association.
4: I guess there's, in terms of features, do you mean sort of what the, the pathways and options are?
1: What are the best ones?
4: The best ones? Well, I think that's um, a really personal thing. Obviously, so I guess for me, myself, I'm at university... But I think um, university has a lot of sort of issues in itself in terms of access, and also, um, you know, often there's it's a bit maybe the options of degree and study at university might not prepare you for the workforce in the way that other spaces can. So, um, yeah, but I think it really is a matter of personal choice, but there is a, definitely a lot of potential in the vocational education space. Um, so, now, especially with Pukinga, which is the conglomerate of all the ITPs and ITOs and all the politics, is there's um, to be a lot of work being put in in terms of creating a more equitable space in um, the vocational education area. And I think that that's a really awesome opportunity for disabled learners. It um, has been for a while now, but it's sort of really, there's a lot of work going in that space. But yeah, we always really just encourage that, for, just as any other learner, it's really about, um, you know, doing what you actually want to do and trying not to be per- persuaded by external factors that might be a barrier. So, for instance, I was kind of encouraged not to go to certain universities or not to do certain degrees because I might come up against sort of access barriers. Um, but that's not really, that's not really, um, that's not really on, <laughs> basically. Um, and yeah, we encourage any student to sort of do what they want to do and don't let things stop them, really, and that's kind of what we're there for.
1: So what are the issues that you've had to deal with yourself, Alice?
4: Um, Yeah, so the issues, I guess, that I personally have had to deal with, I have a physical disability and um, the campuses, New Zealand University campuses and non-university campuses for politics as well, are just still facing this, like, basic levels of inaccessibility that we'd think have been solved for years, so... You know, as as simple as lifts not working or doors not being wide enough or they're not being car park available um, or doors being too heavy, like simple access barriers are still a huge problem in universities and politics across the country. I think, again, um, before COVID, I I do a competitive degree, so I'm studying law, and they refuse to let you watch lectures online. So if for whatever reason you missed a class, you know, you, you just missed that class. You had to find notes from others. You just missed out. And um, as we know, for disabled people, going to class is, and physically is, it takes probably double the amount of energy as anyone else. And um, sometimes it's just not possible. So it was always such a, such a barrier for me and for other students. So that's one thing that COVID has sort of allowed is that now we have more opportunity to stay online. But yeah, those access barriers are still very much there.
1: And how much traction do you have to try and get those sort of things seen to or changed when you need to?
4: Um, Yeah, so there's definitely improvement in the face of disabled learner voice. We really encourage um, providers to sort of partner with their disabled learner associations and student associations generally, so also the Māori and Pacifica in general ones. And it's definitely improving that space, but um, disabled students are still kind of not at the table, or even being invited into the room. And if they are, then often, um, often they're sort of ignored, or their issues aren't hurt, like concerns aren't really heard. So um, yeah, there's definitely improvement in this space. So like a few years ago, there were only a few disabled student associations around the country, and the national one. NDSA, we weren't even established at that point. So um, now there's disabled student groups at pretty much all the universities and we're kind of working in the Tupukinga space as well. And obviously at the national level, we uh, have quite a lot of traction. So it's definitely getting better in terms of that disabled student representation, but we're still quite far behind compared to other groups.
1: And what sort of sympathy or support do you get from the mainstream student associations, you know, the other ones? Yeah. What what kind of su- um, support do you get from them?
4: Yeah, so are they, they we yeah they are very important. Um, we rely a lot on allies to kind of get us into the spaces that we are not kind of in already. So um, disabled student groups really rely on having close relationships with general associations to actually get us in the space and get us in the room and also even small things like support, um, admin support for getting up and going. So, for instance, at Massey, at the moment, the Massey students are trying to get a disabled student association going and then the mainstream Massey student group is really supporting that and helping by putting resources behind. So there's some awesome examples of allyship. There are also some not so good examples of general associations still not really understanding the importance of having disabled leadership. Um, and, yeah, so there's still some of those examples of kind of having to push for greater representation. But for the meantime, yeah, we do really rely on those general associations. And at the national level, we have a really strong um, partnership with USA, <laughs> so the New Zealand Union of Students Associations. And they, um, again, just really important for us and getting us in the room and also offering that Um administrative and even financial support to get us sort of up and coming as a new group.
1: And what transitions are there for people who get their qualification, or as someone used to call it the meal ticket, what, what's the transition like trying to get into employment?
4: Yeah, so that's a space that's still, like, very much under, kind of, under research or unknown. We know from, like, friends and from stories from students that it's a really difficult one, so... We know that employment for disabled people, for instance, is lower, and then non like much lower than non-disabled people, and that's the same for students as well. Um, finding a role that coincides with your degree is um, something that we know has been really difficult for students, and that's um, for disabled students. And that's also assuming that disabled students are able to get through the degree and have the right support. Um, We think that one of the biggest issues in that space is like a lack of disabled mentors and lack of disabled um, sort of, yeah, leadership in those spaces that disabled students can see and think, oh, well, that person's gone into this profession and this is what they can give me advice on. Um, And so that's something we're really wanting to sort of work on in the next few years is how we can get more disabled mentors for students because they really just don't see that many people like them in the spaces they're trying to go into.
1: Now, the other relationship I wanted to look, talk to you about was between tertiary education and um, universities and, of course, more technical, vocational training institutions like maybe Polytechs. Mm. Do you have much of a crossover between those? Um,
4: yeah, so as I, we work in both spaces as the National Student Association. So we've been working really closely with Sipu Kinga, which is, as I mentioned before, the big... Um, new sort of conglomerate of all the politics and all the industry training organisations. So they're going to be all centralised under this one big um, government-funded and um, mandated organisation called Te Pukinga. And at the heart of their sort of kaupapa is that um, it's student-led and student-driven, so we have a really important role there, but also that it's... Um, the treaty is at its heart, and also equity, so that's where disability comes in as well. Um, So we work really closely along with Te Pukinga, and we're trying to build more disabled learner representation in that space. It has historically been quite a difficult space in terms of getting student leaders. A lot of student leaders have typically come from the universities. So in our exec, for instance, we are all university students, um, but we are really pushing to work with C. Pukinger and the, their subsidiaries, so their polytechs, to try and develop more disabled learner leadership within their own um, students.
1: That's National Disabled Students' Association co-president, Alice Mander. Now in our chat, Robin Hunt said I should talk with Workbridge, the agency offering a link between disabled job seekers and jobs.
0: Here's Chief Executive Jonathan Mosen. Well. I don't think it was particularly successful in either respect, really, because anecdotally it seems to me like the public service lost its way and there may not be as many disabled people in what I would consider key positions as even there used to be. And perhaps the Ministry for Disabled People is going to address that. In the context of the private sector, we have found an awakening for two reasons in the last two or three years that I've been Chief Executive of Workbridge. One is that we know that employers have been pretty hard hit by the pandemic and the consequent labour shortage. So really they're keen to find workers anywhere. And that is really causing them to ask questions. What don't we know? What do we need to understand? How do we create an environment that's more accommodating of disabled people? And the other thing that's happening is I think people are just embracing diversity. They're keen, there's a genuine interest in doing it, they just want to know about the how. And that's why Workbridge has started this new subsidiary called Just Say Yes, and it's exclusively focused on business confidence.
1: You talked about COVID, so what kind of effect
0: did COVID have on your endeavors? COVID's been really tough for us. We have received quite a lot of support from the Ministry of Social Development, for which we're really grateful, because a few years ago, Workbridge moved to an outcomes-based model. And that means that the government purchases services from us and we get paid based on how many of those services we deliver. Well, obviously, when people are locked down and employers are reluctant to hire, it was really tough for Workbridge and we, we burned through some reserves. It was uh, a difficult time. Now what we're finding with the labour market shortage and as we adapt to working in this new fee-for-service environment, we feel like we're turning a corner now and it's really positive, but it's been a long road. There's been quite a bit of
1: churn in the area of vocational training and tertiary vocational training and tertiary education with the formation of Te Pukinga. What kind of traction are you getting from... People are working in that sector?
0: There's a lot of interest and a lot of corridor going on, and some of that corridor has been turned into action, and we hope that some more will be in due course. So, we do have very good relationships with a number of universities around the country. Transition is really keen. There comes a point where you've got to think about internships or what happens when the degree is finished. So, working in combination, the tertiary institution and Workbridge that really can help give a disabled person a, a head start. We've been talking to Te Puking and that will be ongoing over the next little while as they work through their own disability confidence issues. So the whole area of tertiary education and transition, there's a lot of very positive vibes coming from it and we just have to make sure that we turn that into even more tangible things.
1: Yes, because I know there's some very good work being done around particularly those programs that used to be called work skills vocational skills training, mm. now moving much more to inclusion rather than specific specialist stuff. How's that influence what you do?
0: Um, I think there's an increasing realisation that it's possible to have very effective partnerships with specific industries or with certain professions in mind. So one of the things that we've spun up in the last few months as we've become more entrepreneurial is a new subsidiary called Mahia Kotahi, And that's where we are actually partnering with specific industries for example we have a partnership with the securities industry we have others in the works where we supply uh, workers to specific industries and they are trained to work in those industries and that's really positive we'd obviously continue to work with disabled people who come to us and we work through what their ambitions are what they think their career path might be but these industry partnerships can perhaps work in a, in a different way and that sometimes we can go to potential uh, employees and say we've got industries who are beating down our door looking for workers in a certain field have you considered this field so it's a different way of thinking but it's a great outcome when we can get somebody into employment
1: that's work chief executive jonathan mosen wrapping up today's show until next time i'm not looking forward to your company then kakete Arnold.